in IFS, often there's uh, an analogy of an orchestra. Self is like the conductor of the orchestra and our various parts are the instruments. Mm. Um, so if the conductor self is not leading the orchestra, they might play different songs, different volumes. If we can learn to create calm in the system for self to lead, um, the music can be beautiful, right? Like they're all necessary, they're all important, and they all deserve to be heard, um, but the conductor self leads that process. In this episode, we're exploring the question, how are IFS and EMDR effective tools for treating trauma? So the two acronyms that I used at this front end of this episode were IFS, which is Internal Family Systems, and EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, which are two modalities or methods that are used for treating trauma. Often we talk about these different modalities or methods for treating trauma, and these tools come up a lot um, in different conversation. And so I'm excited to dive deep into how they can be used to gently come alongside people in their recovery. We're introducing you to therapist Emily Carroll and Tara Booker. Christopher, what were your takeaways from this episode? What I really appreciate about this episode is listening to Emily talk about IFS. Yeah. Um, the parts, language, just feels very non-threatening. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of clients really uh, appreciate it, and it gives them a great insight into themselves. So that was a big takeaway for me. I really do love the language of IFS every time I hear more about it because it's language we use. I mean, we may even say it in our everyday language of, I really want to go to this event, but part of me wants to stay home. Yeah. And I think it's just like language we use every day. And so um, viewing ourselves in that lens is really invitational. Uh, mm-hmm. It feels accessible and it's also really gentle. Yeah. And so I love how she explains that. And then I love conversely how Tara brought EMDR into this conversation mm-hmm. as another way to gently walk into our stories. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a different way and kind of how she uses some of that parts language without specializing in IFS. Yep. Yep. No, uh, Tara did a great job with EMDR and it, uh, it can be very, very effective as a way to kind of help people. Yeah. So we have two episodes on EMDR, but I think both Ian who did the episode before and then Tara bring different personality to it. And so sure. I think it's such an important distinction for people when we're looking at different modalities that it has a lot to do with the clinician and building trust there. Mm. So that's kind of a reminder I have for you on the front end too. So stick with us as we explore this question on this week's episode of Treating Trauma. Welcome to the Treating Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Christopher O'Reilly. Join us for a limited series of conversations with trauma experts and world-class clinicians for Milestones, a -a one-of-a-kind, holistic, and specialized residential trauma treatment experience. Together, we'll explore how unresolved trauma from our past can disrupt and block us from being the person we want to be. Tara, thank you for returning. And Emily, we're so excited to sit down with you. I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited to do this together. And we're just kind of dive into some of your specialties and talk about uh, your experience as therapists. And I'm just excited to get to know you guys a little more. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Yeah. So we heard a little bit um, in a previous podcast, Tara, about how you got into this work. But Emily, how did you get into this work? Yeah. So um, 
my undergrad is in social work. So I've done nonprofit work my entire career, um, but at some point moved into or moved out of direct service work Mm -hmm. um, and then found myself doing development and marketing. So really outside of service work. Yeah. um, And had reached a point in my career where I just wanted more. um, And I was talking to a really wise friend of mine about what to do next. And she is very honest and said, (laughs) like, I have known you for so long. And in the entire time I've known you, you've talked about going back to school. Yeah. Um, so I gave lots of reasons why that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> like yeah. finances and time. And, and I had reached a level in my career that I was doing, I was doing well and I was good at what I did. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't fulfilled. And so I gave all the answers. She kept asking more. Um, and then I got to fear. Mm-hmm. And she stopped asking questions and said, okay, I mean, as long as that's a good enough reason not to do it oh yikes wow (laughs) that's a good friend she's a great not everyone can say that is she a therapist she's not but and she everyone says that and it sounds like it it sounds like it but we are like polar opposites of each other she's not really emotional but really wise and knows me really well yeah so fear was not a good enough reason and I generally try not to let fear drive decisions or just the course of my life. So I really think it was like the next day I applied to grad school and like that week quit my job and started grad school like a few weeks later because it's something that I wanted to do for so long, for so long um, and really never looked back. So it's, Therapy is a second career for me, but it also feels like the whole story led up to this mm. point. So that makes a lot of sense. Really cool. Yeah, interesting. And then, um, when you finished your master's, what type of clinical work did you get into? Uh, yeah, so I was doing private practice work um, and primarily doing trauma work, just in private practice. Okay. Um, so that's where I was right before coming to Milestones. Wow. And how long have y'all both been at Milestones? Uh, I think I have had I had two years recently. I'm a little under a year. A little under a year. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I love it. And for the both of you, like, what drew you to this particular type of work, say, um, rather than, you know, outpatient or something different? You can go. You're on a roll. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you both do outpatient work still? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I still have, well, I yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I still have my private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, right after undergrad, I did domestic violence work. So I worked in shelters. Mm-hmm. So really different residential yeah. than, the, than milestones, but still residential. And I loved it. Like, yeah, I just loved that work so much and really missed it. Mm-hmm. Um so when the opportunity came to be here, it just made sense. Made sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. To hearing her say that reminds me of mm-hmm. what you said earlier in the earlier mm-hmm. podcast just about when you did your internship in residential mm-hmm. DNA. Like, I think there's just something to say, like, if you get into that, you're either going to really appreciate that that treatment modality or you're mm-hmm. not. Mm. Yes. And I think for those of us that, like residential and what 
can possibly happen in that type of setting, um, I don't know. It kind of sticks with you. Mm-hmm. Well, and Christopher, you've been in residential most of your career too, right? Pretty much all of my career. Yeah. yeah. So I love it. I, I would assume that it's either you're really in or really not with that. Like I, that's mm-hmm. what I've experienced from people who are in that space that they really love it or they don't. Um, and what do you feel like makes residential trauma care different than other offerings? I mean, first and foremost, the speed of mm-hmm. which things can happen here, it's like night and day from outpatient. Mm. And some of that, I think, is because in an outpatient setting, you have 50 minutes once a week. Yeah. Um, by right? yourself. Yeah. By yourself. You're all the therapy. Right. Yeah. You're the only mental health <laughs> experience Great in the week. work mm. can happen. Mm-hmm. But it's slow Mm -hmm. and it has to be by design, right? It wouldn't Mm -hmm. be safe Mm -hmm. to do the work that we do here in an outpatient setting and then send people out into the world to do life, to go to work, to show up for their families. Um, There is so much safety in being able to open up here, do work rapidly, but in a really safe, contained environment where there are so many people to come alongside you. Yeah, I think in the outpatient setting, there's so much like, Yes, you have 50 minutes with someone, but there's a ramp up getting it mm-hmm. down into the space and then you can't just leave them. So you've got to like ramp down. Yeah. So much containment that mm-hmm. has to happen to be able to get to the next 50 minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely one major aspect is the speed, but also I like the depth mm-hmm. I mean, that and as a clinician, mm-hmm. like that they are ready when they walk in my office. Yeah. for that yeah to do the work mm-hmm. um because they're primed all day long all week long this is what they're here to do this is all that they have on their agenda to do in life right now is their mental health trauma healing work that's it so it it really cuts out a lot of um just having to manage anything else that would make it a slower mm-hmm. or a harder process to drop in um, I think the other aspect that I love about residential is that they're here with other human beings. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, the the powerful uh, thing, one of the million lines that I stole from the 12-stop programs because mm-hmm. they have all the good one-liners is, you know, we're wounded in isolation and we heal in community. Yeah. And we like, there's just endless validation of that every day throughout the week um, to be able to the difference between, and we don't, we do some group work uh, as adjunct therapists, but for the most part, um, we do individual sessions. But um, as having done group work as a part of mm-hmm. um, the work I've done, like what happens in a group versus what can happen in a session, like I genuinely will go into an individual session and um, almost every day at least in the course of those sessions will feel the handicap of not having another client in the room mm-hmm. to help mm-hmm. do a thing that I want, you know, yeah. to help really um, walk someone through with whatever their trauma is. So having other um, humans to walk alongside them and do the work together uh, is like you you can't really even say what it does, but it does this like magical extra thing. Mm-hmm. So that's something that. Yeah, I love that. The uh, I think too, just the the group, the community. Like when you start seeing someone outpatient, 
it takes them a while to get to trust you and know you. Mm -hmm. But when someone walks into a residential program, they can quickly gauge from the other clients whether this place can be trusted or not. Yeah. Yeah. And they settle in so much faster. Mm -hmm. So much faster. It just speeds everything up Mm -hmm. in a good way. Well, and clients will talk about that. Like they'll talk about how the element of being at milestones and having people doing the same work as them, Mm -hmm. same but different, right? But Mm -hmm. people in their process, there's something about knowing that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you talked a lot, Tara, about like, well, both of you actually did, of there's so much priming that happens that there's multiple touches in a client's experience in the Mm -hmm. week before they even get to you and then they'll have an experience after they leave you. Mm -hmm. What have you, like what kind of, um, what do those different touches look like throughout the week before they're having an individual session with you? Yeah, so that would be like whatever happened in group Mm -hmm. the day before, their core group the day before, which is like their smaller little kind of five-person group or... Mm -hmm. And then there's adventure therapy that they all do together as a whole house with 20 of them. Mm -hmm. Or there's um, like an addictions and attachments group that happened that morning or that afternoon or equine that happened. Like all of these different experiences just constantly like kind of um, that they're exposed to, that they're tapped into. And something's happening in every one of them that, I mean, this is oftentimes it's like which which thing, which way are we going to go in a session? Because there's so many options. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. so open to, to kind of all the parts of their story that um, there's, yeah. That's a really interesting point. So how do you decide when you have a one-on-one session with someone? Like, where are we going today? Um, and what is the level of, um, I guess, just like letting them lead out in that? Yeah, well, there's, like, a lot of factors that help determine that. Um, uh, The first is that there's a collective treatment team that's really talking about every day the work that a client is doing. Um, And so we meet with the team before we have all of our sessions to know what is going on for that particular person. So there may be something that their other therapists will share like Mm. this is happening right now it feels really important um so they might give us a guide into that um i always check in with the client like what's going on like what have you been working on Mm -hmm. is there anything lingering right now um and they have definitely a say Uh, yeah everything is up to them ultimately um and outside of that you know i think it's just my best clinical judgment which feels like a whole nother episode okay so let's just kind of dive into some of the different modalities that you guys specialize in what are you bringing to a client session um so i primarily operate and use internal family systems with clients um it's just to me it's a model that makes sense Mm -hmm. Uh, it feels really intuitive for me um really relational um and it brings a level of compassion that just feels right right like i think that when we experience trauma there is this felt sense that we're not safe in our bodies and so hyphas invites that back in um by clients knowing their various parts Mm -hmm. and then getting to heal parts of their story through a relationship with their parts Mm. yeah so can you give us just like a kind of an overview of parts and 
what that means and how IFS like utilizes the different parts that maybe we've abandoned or yeah. the language I've heard. Yeah. So um, in IFS at the core is um, this concept that we all have a core self. Um, it's not something that's lost or broken, but really is all things good and light within us. Um, it's not something that we need to even find, mm. but that we have access to all the time. Now, it might be because of woundings, we have parts that show up that work to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. um, those in IFS would be called protectors. Mm -hmm. They can either show up as managers or firefighters, and they function very much like their name suggests. A manager is going to be a part that day-to-day -day keeps the system safe. Um, so it might be perfectionism for someone. It might be anxiety for someone else. Um, firefighters are going to be those parts that show up to keep us safe when there's, like when something gets too close, like right when it touches our stuff. Um, and when I say our stuff, like the wounded parts of us, yeah. which in IFS would be called our exile. Um, our exiles carry the burdens of trauma and pain. Um, so in IFS, you know, we're looking to not get rid of any of our parts. All of our parts are going to be good and at their core work to our, to our benefit. Um, and sometimes might take on roles that don't serve us well. Um, they might have at one point, um, yeah. but they might no longer serve the function or the intention mm. that they originally developed so we're going to move protectors into roles that best serve us and we're going to unburden the hurt parts of ourselves not get rid of anything um in ifs often there's uh, an analogy of an orchestra um, and i think in a past podcast you talked about this um that self is like the conductor of the orchestra and our various parts are the instruments um so if the conductor self is not leading the orchestra. They might play different songs, different mm -hmm. volumes. If we can learn to create calm in the system for self to lead, mm -hmm. um, the music can be beautiful, right? Like they're all necessary. They're all important and they all deserve to be heard. Um, but the conductor self leads that process. Wow. So Emily, if you were working with someone that had maybe like a really pronounced protective part, maybe mm -hmm. because it, their life required it, say yeah. when they were younger, yeah. but at this point in their life as an adult, it like, it does more than protect, it keeps them isolated mm -hmm. or it, it makes it difficult for them to have intimacy and relationships, whatever. Sorry, what? Um, it... It makes it hard for them to have intimacy in relationships. Yeah. How do you work with that? Like, like I, I kind of, I mean, I'm not a real big, I don't understand IFS a ton, but yeah. when you talk about it, it makes perfect sense. But I'm just curious, like, what do you do with that? Get really curious. Okay. Um, and so I, I meant to bring the list of the eight Cs because I always like, there are eight characteristics of self when someone is in self yeah they're gonna demonstrate one of those eight c's okay. um, and usually the two that are the easiest to access and the easiest to spot are going to be curiosity and compassion mm -hmm. so we're gonna get really curious about that part like how that shows up when did it show up 
what might it need? Mm-hmm. How might it serve them? Mm-hmm. We're just gonna get to know the part and really see it. Um, offering that we're not trying to make it go away, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes just being seen and heard starts to shift. It creates shifts and creates a sense of safety where it might be able to step back where we can then work with and get to know the part that it protects. Gotcha. Right? Like it's, if it's serving to be a barrier to intimacy, there's a hurt part back there Mm -hmm. that it's afraid Mm -hmm. to let be vulnerable, to let other people get to know. So we got to know that part for it to ever want to step back. Of course it's there. It's there. Sure. Sure. I think it's so empathetic. Every time I hear someone talk about IFS, I just feel like it's so full of empathy and so full. I love the statement, of course. Like, of Mm -hmm. course it makes sense. Of course um, that would happen. And I think it is just such a graceful lens to think about your story and the ways that you're coping with it. Of course they make sense. Like everything that we are doing has a reason behind it. Everything makes sense within the context of our story. Yeah. Hey there, thanks for listening to the Treating Trauma Podcast. I want to let you know about another way that the experts at OnSite can support you in your journey. OnSite is known and respected worldwide for providing life-changing group workshops and intensives that are founded on innovative clinical expertise, safe community, and exceptional healing hospitality. Guided by the top clinical minds in the field, these offerings extend the length and depth of healing work in ways that are not always afforded in other settings. Unlike traditional therapies, our experiential therapeutic framework is blended with other innovative modalities and grounded in the group experience. Removed from the distractions of everyday life, our intensive and group workshop experiences curate an environment for unprecedented and deeply impactful exploration and breakthrough. Coupled with our world-class dining and hospitality, we're committed to meeting you with the safe environment you need to fully embrace the process and engage wholeheartedly in the healing you deserve. You can now experience the power of an on-site experience on both our California and Nashville campuses. Connect with our admissions team at 1-800-341-7432 or head to onsiteworkshops.com to learn more. Now, back to the interview. Tara, do you feel, how do you then meet with a client who's in the middle of that, reckoning like, okay, there's this part of me that keeps coming up and I'm trying to then be kind to it. And I think we we talked or we'll talk with you about recovery and um, just being, what am I thinking, that the behavior makes sense in the context. Mm -hmm. Even compulsive behaviors, Mm -hmm. addictive behaviors, they all make sense. Mm-hmm. within our story and so I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about that too yeah I I, I mean as soon as I hear Emily talk about that <clears throat> um there's just almost a moment in every session mm. like this is just such a part of the work where um we have a whether it's a thought that is I don't want to do this or a, um, a sort of fear that we like are frustrated about that. We're afraid of that mm. or, uh, something that shows up like, I, I, um, 
<laughs> humor that just keeps happening, yeah. which just happened in last session. And the per like in the person, the client might be frustrated, quote unquote, with themselves about mm -hmm. what is present, mm -hmm. whatever that is. I want to cry, but I'm tensing it up right now. It won't come out. And they're frustrated with themselves, whatever, like all those different things. And so like in, in the IFS notion that whatever is kind of holding it or bringing that in or the thing or the humor that they're frustrated with, that's a part mm -hmm. and a protector part. And it, without necessarily me using the IFS model or language, almost always the first thing I have to do is to stop the battle mm -hmm. with that, to yeah. say, Okay. Because you're, <laughs> well, you're not gonna win. You're not gonna win. That's good. You're yeah. so not gonna win. Yeah. yeah. And like tension begets tension mm -hmm. and all of that. So the first thing I'll do is like, well, first let's listen to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, that's the same mm -hmm. language that I yeah. use. Um, what is what is hap like? What is it feeling? What is it worried about? What does it think will happen if you? X. Mm -hmm. um, and we just start having a conversation. What is the tension? Oh, it's afraid. What is it afraid about? What does it need to feel mm -hmm. secure right now? Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it's a really, it's a, the most common thing is really being at war with ourselves, you know, yeah. um, and, and thinking that it, and judging it, you know, that it's wrong, that it's not helping me, it's only hurting me, all of those things, especially with addictive behaviors, like, what? No, it's just a bad thing that I've done that. Like, why is there anything that it does? It hasn't served me at all. I always ask yeah. that question, yeah. especially about addiction. What? It hasn't. It's only hurt my life. And I'm like, um, let's get real honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it, when we invite a permission like to name what is it actually offering mm -hmm. me? Um, what does it have to say? What is it trying to communicate um, or protect me from uh, or get me? Then um, as soon as we hear it, it's like, oh, it, it just like helps me breathe right now to make a joke. Mm -hmm. And that feels good. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh. And you're not at war with it anymore. You're yeah, immediately yeah. compassionate almost when yeah. you realize why it's actually there. Well, and you you said that question, like, what might it need? Mm -hmm. So asking, what might this part need to feel safe to step back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we can get to know this other part? Mm -hmm. Right? Because you said that you might be working with a protector and then another protector comes in because there's this sense you're getting too close. This is too close to yeah. my stuff. Yeah. So we might make jokes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and humor can absolutely serve as a protective part. So really asking the question, what might the part need mm. to step back? Mm. And just inviting an answer and listening to that and offering it. Well, it feels really vulnerable yeah. to do that and hear that and listen. Like I just, as an observer sitting out here, one, I think people could hear this and say, okay, so I'm talking to myself. One, that's yeah. like what yeah. I've heard of IFS. Yeah. I'm just having conversations with myself. But two, I continually be, I continue to be so in awe of people who do this work, who dive into, especially a residential setting to say like, I'm going to be entering into the deep end and stay there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not come out of that because it's really vulnerable to ask yourselves those hard questions and continue to get below, below, below. Well, absolutely. Vulnerability requires courage yeah. um, because there's risk involved mm -hmm. with if there were no risk, it wouldn't be vulnerability. 
um, and vulnerability or courage is one of those characteristics of self. So when someone is in self energy, when they're operating from a place of core self, they're able to access their courage and do the vulnerable thing. Mm -hmm. I think what I kept hearing from you is it's not about removing this thing Mm -hmm. or getting rid of it, which someone might enter into this work and say, okay, I just want to get rid of X, Y, and Z, and then I'll be good. And they do. (laughs) Then they do. They want to. (laughs) I once heard a client kind of frame it like, you know, my anger's in the driver's seat Mm -hmm. and I need to get it in the back seat. Yeah. Because there might be a time when I need that anger appropriately, but it's not serving me in the driver's seat. Mm Mm-mm. But the part in and of itself is not bad. That's right. Its intention to protect is good. Mm-hmm. There just might be instances or it might where it's not serving the system, mm-hmm. um, or it's just in the driver's seat and needs yeah. to sit in the back. Exactly. I remember one of the most revolutionary things that my therapist ever said to me was that emotions are not um, positive or negative; they're neutral. Mm-hmm. And I like stopped. Mm-hmm. And said, that's not true. The only positive emotion is joy. Mm -hmm. Um, But kind of diving deeper into that and seeing the shadow sides of all of our emotions. Mm -hmm. I think we're really, we're really familiar with those, like the shadow sides of anger, the shadow sides of shame, the shadow sides of fear. I'm really familiar with that. Mm -hmm. But also fear offers me a lot of gifts. It keeps me safe. Yeah. Anger it's awakens the only me to justice. We're all alive right yes, now. Yeah. I think. I mean, I was in a conversation the other day, and Christopher said, "Anxiety gets you out of bed in the morning." And I thought, "It does. Like, yeah, the, it has its. It has a place. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny. It's the only and reason any of us are alive. They're messengers too of what yeah. we need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was thinking as you were talking about like the step aside, you know, we don't get rid of parts, mm-hmm. but the language that Emily uses is asking them to step aside. And um, I may not explicitly like have that kind of dialogue with a part, but if it, if uh, like kind of what I might phrase as like a defense um, mm-hmm. or a survival response or a protector shows mm-hmm. up, um, like in the form of humor in the midst of like talking about something really tough with a client, um, I might invite something like, you know, can you just look, like, look, let's look at our, each other's eyeballs right now. I do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. And like, what do you see? Like, what, what, I'm, what do you know about me right now? Um, and hopefully, <laughs> I haven't ever heard anything awful. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, you're calm. Mm-hmm. Um, you're paying attention. Um you're safe or you're not judgmental of me and dropping them into it's like in this in that way I'm communicating with a protector it's okay right now yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. this is safe to be vulnerable because this is where I am Mm -hmm. um so that's maybe a way that I see that that playing out like in actuality yeah I think so much of this work is asking clients to look back at and make sense of things in the past. And I think we hear a lot like, don't dwell in the past, mm-hmm. just move forward. Um, but what I know about the work and really any work is that we can't move forward until we've kind of reconciled with the past. But I'd love to hear more about that. Of Why is that true? It does make me think about some of what we had talked about in our pre- other conversation of like, we carry our stories with us everywhere yeah. we go. There's, yeah. I mean, when you look at, um, when you really look at yourself, uh, you know, there's this like spiritual 
like woo-woo thing thrown around of like time, time is not real, you know, it's just a concept. And I think a lot of our like experiences with ourselves confirm that to be true in a different way. Mm-hmm. Like if I ask, I'll often ask a client, um, like if we're trying to go back to like a childhood wound and offer that something it didn't get lovingly mm-hmm. or protectively and showing up for it, caring for your inner child, something we talk about a lot. They'll often say, well, it's done. Mm-hmm. So I can't, mm-hmm. you know, because all of a sudden time is like a hard line and, you know, in the sand. Mm-hmm. And I say, it was interesting because like when you're um, activated, like in a flashback or triggered mm-hmm. into this experience uh, and you're ruminating about your childhood and your body feels exactly like you did there with your dad when he was screaming at you, mm-hmm. time isn't real then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like time, it, your body is wherever it is in that mm. given moment. Like the somatic experience that you're having is the experience that you're in. Um, and I think it it softens people to that kind of yeah. like, you know, thing of like it's there, it's done, I can't mm. go back. And, um, and to see like actually we don't necessarily live in a particular like space, you know. Um, we – carry it all with us and that does invite the possibility for healing to happen that's why healing can happen Mm. um is because time isn't necessarily linear or a one and done that yesterday is gone and and we can't connect to it anymore we can't kind of that part of us is still with us and so uh going there um i think is a way i talk about it like let's check in let's visit um and get to know and offer something and show up for and take care of whatever that was um from the present so we talk we'll talk about this in emdr in particular but in any trauma processing it's really one foot in the past one foot in the present you're doing your best to stay in both places at once yeah going all the way like leaving the fact that you are a present, you know, adult in a safe space mm-hmm. to look at that awful thing that happened to you when you were 10 is not really what we want you to do either. Mm-hmm. We want you to both be connected there and here. So it's very delicate work that we do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so I think that's another way of looking at it, too, is that we're kind of touching as much as we can on what was there so that it can have space to be processed and breathed and taken care of, but from a place of present adult capable mm. self that actually can do that mm-hmm. for yeah. parts of ourselves that couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is a way I think about it too. And I yeah. agree that we shouldn't dwell no. in the past. That's Dwelling right. is living. That's right. Um, and I do want to live right where I am, you know, as much as possible, which is here in the present. Um, but the 12 steps have another great saying, which is, uh, we shall not regret the past nor wish to, nor wish to shut the door on it. Mm. And that feels like a balance. And you could throw, we shall not dwell in the past nor wish, wish to shut the door on it. Yeah. I think that would be an allowing of like, I can carry all of my, life with me Mm -hmm. um in a way hopefully that is like embodied and integrated Mm -hmm. and whole my story is all of me now instead of i've got to leave that there because it's bad or compartmentalized yeah Mm -hmm. all the different areas fragmenting ourselves well and i was thinking from the from an ifs perspective the like one foot in present and past would be staying Mm -hmm. in a place of true self 
and visiting your exile, but mm. really mm-hmm. not blending the two, not um, taking the stance that you embody the exile, but you have a sense of I am my current self and I can have a relationship with this wounded part of me that carries a burden that, I mean, gosh, wouldn't that feel good to unburden something, yeah. right? If, if you're carrying that with you, there's just no way it, it is part of your story until you unburden that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't erase that it happened, but mm-hmm. it creates a new relationship mm-hmm. with that part of you. Yeah. It's interesting because it's like, who are you? It's like, I'm pretty much a combination of all my experiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes they have more power than they should. And I think what we're talking about is how to, you know, manage that a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think not disregarding all that I carry from that season. Yeah. Um, but I love the idea of having your foot in two worlds. I was thinking about EMDR when you were talking about that because that is kind of my only experience with EMDR was very much standing in that stance of I've got my foot firmly here Mm -hmm. and I'm going back and revisiting this situation as my adult self. Can you talk about EMDR and how it works and how it helps us process traumatic memories? Because it, all I have is my own personal experience and I feel like, yes, it does, but I don't really know why. Sure. Um, Also, yeah, do my best, not as a neurobiologist, which is technically the thing that's happening in EMDR. Um, But EMDR utilizes bilateral stimulation, which another way of saying that is like right, left, right, left. Mm -hmm. Bilateral stimulation that happens in our normal life is walking, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. Um, It happens in our sleep. Um, When we're dreaming and we're in REM state, our eyes flutter back and forth in our head, which is kind of how they discovered that this was a thing. And EMDR stands for? Eye movement desensitization reprocessing. (laughs) It's been a long time since I've actually had to say it. Um, And so that bilateral stimulation in our system kind of, I don't know if it's technically accurate to say you're activating your right and your left brain at the same time. That's probably too much science for me to know. But nonetheless, you're stimulating right and left um, and with any kind of movement um, on the right side of your body and the left side of your body. And so with eye movement is how it started. Um, You would literally follow um, someone's fingers right and left, right and left, uh, which, again, this happens when we're in a dream state naturally every night when you get there and you have weird dreams and you like think about old memories or you have weird feelings or crazy stuff or nightmares or things that have happened um, because you are processing that content that in an awake conscious state is typically put away so we would call it unconscious when we're walking around and doing our regular day that the stuff in there is unconscious and that this bilateral stimulation activates or brings to the surface unconscious, unprocessed content that would otherwise be tucked away during our conscious states um, and would just get activated in all these other moments, like against our will, like with a flashback or in a nightmare. So EMDR allows us to get there while you're conscious and awake. So in in real time, Tara, Mm -hmm. how does it help? You know, when you talk about desensitizing, Mm -hmm. you know, what is the goal of EMDR and what what kind of ways does it impact clients when you're doing it? 
Yeah. So we would um, likely kind of identify something that they know is distressing to them, mm-hmm. uh, even if they don't know what all the unconscious content is around it, but they know that they have nightmares about it or they still have fear about it or hypervigilance about it. Uh, and we would just uh, start with the bilateral stimulation around that memory and the feelings that they're aware of. Ideally, uh, what or what is happening, um, I've never seen it not happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say all of my experience shows that what will happen when we do that is um, really it the, the explicit experience is different for each person. So, But what is generally happening, happening is that whatever feelings, thoughts, um, somatic reactions that didn't fully get processed, acknowledged, or released during the time of a trauma, then have a space to do that. Mm-hmm. And we are consciously in a relationship with that. Um, so we're also present for it. You know, the client who's in it and kind of I pause and check with them and they're able to tell me a brief version of what they're noticing. And then I'm there with it. So there is a sort of caretaking for that thing at the same time um, without us never even having to explicitly do anything for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then hopefully what happens as a result of kind of getting whatever needed to move or be gotten out, out, or being able to feel things that didn't get to be felt, felt, mm-hmm. or validate and nurture and care for the things that didn't get cared for or validated or nurtured, then your level of stress around that experience goes down as a result of that. Um, I Yeah. Yeah, so that's really the desensitizing part. Mm-hmm. So, wow. So they can just have a different day-to-day experience, um, maybe on something that is old, mm-hmm. you know, a past experience or a past situation that continues to create distress, and they learn to tolerate it. Yeah, it becomes an actual memory. I mean, that's really the difference between, like, an unprocessed traumatic event and things that just happened yesterday Yeah, uh, is we want you to just know like, oh yeah, that happened. You know, the other day I got a flat tire. Uh, I was so upset. I was so stressed, but we don't carry it on process probably because we got Mm -hmm. everything we needed or we had support or it wasn't life threatening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But to be able to hold even our traumatic experiences and say, yeah, that happened. Mm-hmm. I don't live there. It's mm-hmm. not present now. It's not present now. Yeah. And until everything gets to move all the way through and be released as it needs to be released, mm-hmm. then it doesn't, our body doesn't recognize it as old. It recognizes mm-hmm. it as present. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. That's really profound. Mm. Our body doesn't recognize it as old and mm-hmm. recognizes as present mm-hmm. which is why you feel like you're there like yeah. oh my god i'm gonna so die a, right the now reprocessing mm-hmm. part is once it's reprocessed mm-hmm. then it can move does it move to a different place in our brains or is that too neurobiological i don't know i don't know but uh i would say the i would say that it it doesn't um carry unprocessed fear gotcha or mm-hmm. um sadness or things that i needed um that it's just held like as a memory, which doesn't mean you don't have feelings about it ever again. I think that's important to say. Um, But it's the same as anything else. That's like, oh, you know, my so-and-so person said something hurtful to me the other day, but we worked through it or I had a conversation. 
it still sucks to think about that, that they said that. Yeah. Um, but I'm not there. Uh, I know that that's done. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to be activated or reacting to it as if it's now. I love that differentiation of mm-hmm. memory and trauma mm-hmm. in that our our brain is designed to clean things up. Mm-hmm. So it's why, like, um, when you remember things over time, the story gets just, like, a little softer, a little nicer. Um, mm-hmm. It's also the reason that, like, if you have siblings, if siblings get together and talk about something from childhood, somebody will be like, were you raised in a different house? That's yes. not how not I remember it. At all. Yes. <laughs> because yep. our brain just will soften things and work for our good. When yeah. there's trauma, it's stuck and it's the memory it does it's not a memory. It doesn't change. Mm-hmm. It's why people can with accuracy, like incredible accuracy, accuracy describe a room or what somebody looked like during mm-hmm. their trauma because it isn't stored in the same place that mm-hmm. memory is. Mm-hmm. So it's not getting cleaned up. It just stays as it is. When the when the trauma is processed then and moved to a place of memory, then your brain does do what it's designed to mm-hmm. do, mm-hmm. which is work for your good and clean things up that need to be cleaned up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a good point. That's so good. Um, we've talked a lot. I mean, we've talked about IFS. We've talked about EMDR. We've talked about residential care. How do we determine what might be the next right modality in our journey? And how would you encourage someone who's thinking like, okay, there are a lot of trauma modalities out there. Mm-hmm. What should be my next step? That's a pretty tough question. Yeah. I, I mean, like for me personally, it has just been trying them mm-hmm. um, and seeing what feels best to me. Um, because uh, like even listening listening to someone t- to me talk about EMDR is I don't know who's going to be like, sign me up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, like, what? I don't yeah. Do that. Um, so I don't, I don't, I, I think if you have any sort of guidance of someone who knows anything about this and you can tell them what your issue yeah. is, what you're looking for, what you're experiencing, mm-hmm. and you can get any sort of like someone who's done it before, you can get mm-hmm. on the phone with them, with professionals and ask them what seems like it might be a good modality for mm-hmm. me to look for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, then I think that's going to be the way to go. I think that the alliance between a therapist and a client is so, so important. Mm -hmm. So, yes, modality has value to it. Um, And finding someone in a space Mm. where you feel comfortable and safe and seen and heard, there is a tremendous amount of research around that very reality, that that moves the needle more than anything. Mm modalities are important right there is so much truth to that that Mm. when we can feel safe there can be movement so modality is important and being with someone that you can feel safe to do really vulnerable work is paramount right yeah yeah emily i can't help but think about when you were describing ifs and you talked about how it just like resonated with you mm-hmm. so as a mm-hmm. clinician like that resonates with you so that's mm-hmm. very in line with who you are yeah. mm. which i think is fantastic you know using mindfulness is sort of my go-to and it resonates with who i am so i think that 
if I tried something that didn't resonate with me, I don't know how genuine that would feel mm-hmm. yeah. to clients. And then that impacts the safety and the trust and mm-hmm. the rapport. And it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, we can't, we got to be very genuine in our approaches. And yeah. I'm glad that you do IFS because that's what really sits with you. Mm-hmm. It just makes sense. That I love thinking through like what resonates <clears throat> with you is going to be the most authentic and mm-hmm. then going to be the safest for your clients. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I love that you talked about um, the therapeutic relationship because um, clients will come in and tell me they've done EMDR and not experienced mm-hmm. what they're, they've experienced with me in EMDR or here at mm-hmm. EMD, in EMDR. Like, that's also a thing well, to maybe your point. Maybe outpatient, maybe not rapport, so maybe not safety. Yeah. yeah. So many factors that you know, may have something to do with me or the space or whatever, or mm-hmm. just where they are. But, yeah. you know, I think it, it's to the point of modality is a big piece of it, but there's a lot of other stuff going on mm-hmm. that can make that work for you at a given time and not mm-hmm. at different times and that kind of thing. So in yeah. the therapy room, it's the number one indicator for positive outcome mm-hmm. is that alliance. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's so good. I am just so grateful for both of you as clinicians and helping professionals and i um think our clients are so lucky to have both of you thanks for saying thanks thanks for joining us thank you if you or someone you love is struggling with the negative effects of unaddressed trauma the safety community and expert care of the residential experience at milestones may offer the individualized help and healing you need Milestones is a one-of-a-kind, holistic, and specialized residential trauma treatment experience, serving individuals adversely affected by symptoms of unaddressed trauma, including anxiety, depression, codependency, and PTSD. This innovative and integrative program offers a variable length of stay from 30 to 90 days, specific to individual needs. When life feels like too much, Milestones offers a refuge and a place of healing. Learn more at milestonesatonsite.com. Also, we'd love to help you explore the right option for you. You can connect with our admissions team for a confidential call at 1-800-341-7432 or email them at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com. You deserve this.